Here on News Bites, we've been discussing a lot about where agriculture may be headed, but it also helps to know where we've been. The lessons of the past can guide our future. Hi, I'm Steve Ammerman, Director of Communications for New York Farm Bureau, and welcome to News Bites. No one is better suited for a conversation about the past than Dick McGuire. He grew up in Washington County, farming in an era before tractors even plowed the fields. And from a simple invitation, he became one of the most influential people in New York agriculture. Dick served 14 years as president of New York Farm Bureau and seven as the state's commissioner of agriculture. He also served on the National American Farm Bureau Board of Directors and played a role in many major policy decisions that still impact agriculture and Farm Bureau today. Because of that, Dick has a long list of awards, including the highest honor from New York and American Farm Bureau, the Distinguished Service Awards. If that isn't enough, he's created an agricultural museum on his property, collecting antique tractors, tools, and so much more that tell the story of agriculture. Dick celebrated his 100th birthday at the end of last year. The event brought so many friends and family back to Washington County to honor a man so many people love. And we sat down with him not long after that to talk about his storied career and what we can learn from his experiences. How does it feel? Hit 100? I don't notice any difference, really. I'm very fortunate because I have no known health problems except old age. My balance is not always good, so I use a cane or a walker just as a protection from falling because the last two things that happened to me were both falls. You just don't know when they're going to happen, that's all. So that's a precaution. But other than that, I'm, as far as I know, perfectly healthy. Well, you look good <laughs> and you sound good. Well, so we're sitting here. This is the house you grew up in. My grandfather bought this farm with this little house in 95. Soon after, he cut logs in the, the original house is just that section out there. He cut logs in a woodlot up here, chestnut and oak, added this part, this part where we're sitting in 1900. And what kind of farm was it? You had dairy cows? Small dairy farm. He had five or six cows. My, my father took over the farm and in 1918, had 10 milk cows until we were, were was 12 years old, rented the farm next door. At the time, the, that farm, the, the owner had retired and moved into Salem and was renting it out to different people every year or two. That was kind of the pattern of people moved around, rented farms. So suddenly we had 20 cows instead of 10. 240 acres instead of 60. Things changed rapidly then. Let's talk about that. What was it like farming back then in the 30s, 40s, when you were, were growing up here? The growth of farming and the change of farming has all been, always been dependent on the tools they used. Whatever was available at the time limited what you did. In other words, if, until milk machines came along, Six to eight cows is about the limit of people milking cows by hand. Just couldn't do any more than that. Relatively the same in the field work. You had a team of horses and a plow. You could only plow an acre a day. So you had maybe 10 or 15 acres of crops. And that was usable for the eight or 10 cows you had. So until mechanization came, electricity, all of those advancements, it dictated absolutely the size of the farms. That's why so many small farms, probably father and his son, you hope to have a couple sons to help you, had day labor you could get, but agriculture didn't move until the inventions of a variety of new equipment and new systems, particularly electricity, particularly tractors, suddenly you had the capacity of one man to do, do twice as much as he did before. So his, his farm grew, his herd of cattle grew, and so forth. And that's followed right through until today. With the computer and everything that goes with it, made it possible, and the milking parlors and the pipeline milkers and all that stuff, suddenly 
one man could handle 200 cows instead of 20. So you wrote a book kind of detailing your, your life here on the farm, and you talk about the day you got the first tractor and the day that the bulk milk cooler came to the farm. I mean, those were significant advances. Do you remember like the day you, you the tractor arrived? Oh yeah, I sure do. And when I was in the college, the first pickup baler that baled hay in the field arrived out of one of the farms close to Morrisville. But the war was on, 43. I came home and ordered one, $750. Didn't get it till the next year. Drove the tractor, H. Farmall tractor, 35 miles to Bennington. Drew the baler home behind the tractor. Attracted a lot of attention. Everybody come to look at it. It was a, it was a milestone. I might add, one of the things that I'll take credit for, but probably I decided on it or my influence at Morrisville dictated it. I decided to use my farm facilities as an experiment station of my own. But you know, it was a time when hybrid seed was coming in and corn, new varieties of alfalfa, a whole lot of changes were available, but hadn't been adapted yet. I decided that because I had 240 acres of land, why not try these new things? Don't take somebody's word for it. Salesman trying to sell you corn, you're going to plant 50 acres of corn, plant five acres of the new seed and see what happens. Don't take anybody's word for it. I did that with a whole lot of things. Pick up balers, milk machines, pipeline milkers, gutter cleaners, silo and loaders. It don't necessarily have to be the first person that uses one, but don't be the last one. So I was an innovator, and not all of them worked. I used some things like mow dryer of hay with a big fan mounted on the end of the barn. That didn't work. <laughs> and I, I considered that as a correction in direction. But even in, in when things didn't work, I'm sure you still learned something. That's right. Yeah, I said, that's found out what didn't work and why. You didn't plunge into it. You just experimented and find out for yourself. You were also one of the first, at least in this area, to do artificial insemination for your dairy. Yeah, cow. that's right. Yeah. You read that in the book. I yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, that was the first artificially bred calf in the county. I'm sure it wasn't in the state. There's others. And uh, Cornell was experimenting with it as a time tool. But as far as farmers go, and you know, uh, we had purebred Holsteins, as, as well most of the farmers in the area did. And part of their marker was selling bull calves. And I can remember the resistance to artificial breeding. We had a couple of meetings. A couple of other farmers and I organized a couple of meetings and had somebody from Cornell come out and talk about artificial insemination of dairy cattle. Doing worth keeping a bull on the farm. Plus, have it better breeding results. Farmers, a lot of farmers were against it because of, they had a market for bull calves. But once it got started, it very rapidly took over. Really, farming is a lot about innovation yep. and change and looking to do better. Is, is there one thing that, that stands out for you of, of something that truly made a difference? I know you, you talk a little bit about just electricity and, and mechanization, but is there, there one thing that really was a, a change maker here on the farm? Well, obviously the tractors. Mm -hmm. And the first tractors, and I've got a museum full of the first tractors. At the time, they only took the place of a team of horses, or two teams of horses. Still used the same plows and same equipment and so forth. They just were the power that moved them. And it wasn't until really after the war, war was over that they began to market equipment for tractors. For that, you just pulled the wagon, pulled the mow machine, pulled the plow, and so forth as the power source. Then they started building equipment to go with the tractor. Then that eliminated a whole lot of stuff. Well, tractors appeared on the farms here in the 30s, small tractors, 
to take the place of team horses. But in the late 40s and 50s, everything moved to the equipment for four tractors and had land preparation equipment, seeding equipment, for harvesting equipment, the whole bit. And it was a very rapid change, which greatly expanded the capability of a farmer to raise more crops, therefore keep more livestock. One thing led to the other. So in the 50s, it was also a transition for you as you became involved in Farm Bureau. Do you remember those early days of, of, of Farm Bureau? And, and why did you want to get involved in Farm Bureau? Well, I was showing Kubert Holstein Kettle at the county fair. A friend of mine lived up in Argyle. Before that, everybody belonged to the extension service. It cost $5. And it was the educational program provided by Cornell for on-the-farm education, county agent, and several assisting agents specializing in various things. And it cost five bucks. Everybody blogged, and it was called the Farm Bureau, same name. But it was government-sponsored, government-paid-for through extension service. It was evolving, and it had 80,000 members in New York State. But more and more farm leaders in the state realized that their problems evolving out of legislation without any representation from farmers. A lot of the laws that uh, were not favorable to agriculture were taking place with nobody with the voice of agriculture. And they also realized at the same time that you couldn't take government money and then turn around and complain about it. That discussion took place in 53, 54. They ought to have an organization that was owned and supported financially by the farmers themselves and separated from the educational aspects of the extension service. At the extension service Farm Bureau combination annual meeting in 1954, they decided to separate and have a, two organizations. And they decided it would cost $20 membership. You still belong to extension service, but you belong to this new organization to be the voice of agriculture in the, in the legislature. It was thought at the time that uh, it would probably reduce the membership to maybe 20,000 instead of 80,000. It turned out it reduced the membership to about 5,000. But they had a board of directors here in Washington County, as every county I sure did, of the new organization. And the president was a man named Dave Bain, he was also a Holstein breeder and was showing cattle at the fair with me. And he says to Dick, he says, I want you to join this new organization. We need some young people. I rejected it. What, $20? Well, I don't need that. But they had a meeting in Duanesburg, regional meeting, to hire a couple of field men in the state to encourage people to join. So I agreed to well, go at the meeting, and I joined, and I ended up the next year on the board of directors and the next year vice president and the next year president and so forth. So, But that's how it started. The resistance was the difference between $5 and $20. Because, and, and I don't blame them, because they didn't realize anything was going to be anything different. They didn't have the vision of what the Farm Bureau could do separate as far as lobbying for legislation. I will credit the growth of Farm Bureau primarily to one thing, and I'm, I'm sure that the concept came from somebody that visited and met with our board of directors from the American Farm Bureau. It was a kitchen conference program. It was just amazing. In every township in, the, in our county, and it's similar in other counties, organized small groups of farmers called Kitchen Conference, met once a month in somebody's home. And we had 17 kitchen conferences in Washington County. They started meeting with their local town board, invite the supervisor, road commissioner to the meetings and discuss local problems. At that time, the education was growing and they started centralization of schools. I invited the commissioner of education to a county meeting we had in Hudson Falls High School, had 
400 people there, and suddenly things blossomed. They went back home with their kitchen conferences and met with their local school boards. And we went from 100 members in the county to 300 members in the county in one year. At an annual meeting in, in 58, 59, we have 300 people in the county farm bureau annual meeting. They had as many as they have the state farm bureau meeting now. Mm -hmm. But there were still all of these small farms, and the transition into bigger farms hadn't happened. It's a hard thing to compare it with the situation today. The small farms have just disappeared, and consequently, that affects membership. But one of the things that I think they should be exploring today is there's still a lot of people pointing at agriculture, and, and many Farm Bureau memberships include multiple family members, farm managers, all kinds of specialization on the farms. You take these 2,000, 3,000 dairy farms, they're employing 40 people. And, and some of those are specialist management people in various aspects of the business. At least they ought to, a membership ought to be counted instead of a one farm membership, it ought to include 10 or 15 people that are, are, aren't just common laborers. They're experts. They're specialists. They're involved in farming because somebody owns the facility, but they ought to be counted as, as representative, particularly with the legislature, who show that we're involved much more people in farm bureau membership than, than our figures mm -hmm. say. I mean, your time in Farm Bureau, I mean, you obviously went on to be president of New York Farm Bureau and did a lot of work nationally as well. So it's a good thing that you decided to pay that 20 bucks all those years ago. It really <laughs> did change your life. <laughs> but let, I want to talk about, you know, one of the first things when you were president that you were able to do is change the ag district laws in the state, which was had a profound impact oh, yeah. for New York agriculture. Can you talk a little bit about how that all came about and, and some of those meetings you had with Governor Rockefeller? Yeah, well, to start with, Cornell professor had gone to California and studied agriculture in California where they had zoning and they're zoning agricultural land put a lot of restrictions on the sale of the land and use of the land. He came back and, and spoke at a Farm Bureau annual meeting. Because of the injecting a government entity into the operations of many farms, we were against zoning of farmland. They also recognized that they need some protection. And so out of that discussion, pointed a committee to study an alternative way of protecting agricultural in New York State. Prepared uh, several reports, and as soon as we have had a report proposal in writing, Leland Beebe, who was our legislative director at the time, he and I took it to the governor. Now, the governor was receptive because he had a farm down Dutchess County. He was not totally ignorant of agriculture. As if, even though he's a multimillionaire, he had a keen interest in agriculture and, and sympathized with agriculture. But he also understood the role of government. So we had several meetings with the governor on it, and finally we got pretty close to what he would accept. And I remember he told little Bibi and I, at one of the meetings we had with him, he says, Dick, you're awful close. I want this, this, this included, and you come back next week and we'll sign it. And so we revised it a little bit, tweaked it a little bit, went back in his office, and he agreed on it. That was the A district law. And it was hugely acceptable by the farmers and county after county and started organizing it, putting it in effect, still in effect. The major thing was you assessed farm for, for its use, not for its sales value. And that made a big difference. In what way? Well, a big difference in taxes. It was at the time when people were beginning to migrate to farms. 
buying up land. And so for agricultural purposes, say a farm was worth $15,000 at that time, suddenly it's real estate value for, for sale, for non-farm uses, particularly around the cities, which we have a lot of cities in New York State, was double that. And so the assessor, in many instances, would say, you know, this, this farm is two miles out of Syracuse. It, it's worth $200,000 instead of $50,000 for agriculture. And that's what the farmers were getting assessed. And so it saved a lot of money for an assessment only. And then we've had a, lo a lot of advantages of preserving agricultural land and and encouraging farmers to stay, stay there. Your time then also wasn't just as a board of directors on the executive committee representing the Northeast. Yep. And your time there was, was, was pretty interesting. You did a lot of trade missions. You traveled the country, you know, looking at agriculture and ag policy. You met with four different presidents. That's pretty impressive for a young man who grew up on this farmhouse in Washington County is, is having dinner with, with President Ford. That's right. <laughs> Do you ever think about that? And, and At the time, I didn't think so much about it as I have since. It was interesting. Executive Committee, American Farm Bureau, did open a lot of doors for me. Every year, probably along in February, we met with the president to advise him on what our policy at an annual meeting was answer questions and let him know that we were available if he had any questions for agriculture. And as you say, the four presidents that I met with, Reagan, for some reason, probably because I was closer to Washington maybe than the others, contacted me three or four times after that those meetings and asked me questions. What I didn't put in the book, after one of the times he talked to me on the phone, he said, when you come to Washington next, I, I want to schedule an appointment and come and meet with me. I called because of the Farm Bureau New York delegation of meeting with their congressman. And I didn't meet with the president, but I met with one of his aides. And he hired me as an agricultural attache to the president. He offered me the job, and I obviously was excited about it, but I says, goodness, I'm not very, really interested in moving to Washington. And I told him I'd go home and talk to my wife and think about it and let him know. It. And lucky for me, about the next week, they put a freeze on hiring in Washington. <laughs> so it never, it never, never happened. That, that was being on the American Farm Bureau Executive Committee was opened a lot of doors. And you have a funny story in the book about dinner, or lunch rather, with President Ford and a fortune cookie. Yeah. Can you tell me that story? <laughs> well, our annual meeting in American Farm Bureau was in St. Louis. And at the time, President Ford who hadn't been elected, but was took over when Nixon was being impeached, really. And so he was running for election for the first time. And he was invited to speak to, speak to the American Farm Bureau in St. Louis. So the executive committee planned a luncheon for him before on the, uh, at noon, before he speak that night at the convention. And so there was a, the six of us on the executive committee and his delegation of five or six met at one of the fancy restaurants in St. Louis. And we were sitting at a U-shaped table and I was sitting two chairs from the president, was a man in between us had a fortune cookie, and when I opened mine, it says, this is not a good time to change addresses. So I reached over, and I said, Mr. President, I think I've got your fortune cookie. <laughs> and he says, you're right. <laughs> he gave me his. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Very clever. Your, your time, though, at American Farm Bureau, you had some concerns at the time of how delegates were counted, and really the influence 
of the Northeast. And you worked to do your best to, to try to make sure that there was some balance on the national board. Farm Bureau has had a service for membership only. Originally, it was insurance companies. They've had others, SafeMark and so forth since, but insurance has been a lot of studies made that farmers were all under, nationwide were underinsured. And so many of the states started their own insurance companies and were very successful. So successful that the insurance company became very attractive. Most states in the Midwest and South particularly opened, opened it up for their insurance policy to anybody. And uh, I guess I used an illustration in the, in the book that was a comparison. Alabama was about 40,000 legitimate farmers, out like New York State, had 280,000 members. Farm Bureau, obviously, 80% of them were non-farmers. We didn't care what they did in there. We didn't want to dictate what they did in their state, but we did want to dictate that those 80% that were non-farmers didn't have any right to decide on policy of agriculture. Harold Steele Knife Mill, Illinois was one of them, but not as severe as the South was. So we went to the annual meeting in Hawaii with a proposal that each state designate the number of their membership that were actually farmers. And in that, determined that they could do whatever they wanted to in their state, but as far as American Farm View goes, only, only farmers were to make policy. I'll admit right now that, much to our surprise, our, we almost won it. The state of Indiana voted against it, and that killed it. And of course, it, the South in particular said, hey, if, if, if you pass it, we're only going to pay American Farm Bureau dues on the small number, which was going to cut a million and a half dollars out of American Farm Bureau's budget. That was significant, no question about it. It never has been accommodated, although it's hard to determine what effect it's had on, on policy. But to this day, you know, we came back the next year and did put a limit on how many delegate board members each region of the country was, could only have up, up to 10. Otherwise, the South would have had 20. I don't believe they've ever elected any American Farm Bureau board members that were farmers. Mm -hmm. But still, the South has dominated policy ever since. When did you make the decision, and maybe it was because you had the invitation, to transition from being president of New York Farm Bureau to ultimately, I know you went into banking and then became commissioner of, of agriculture and markets. Well, I didn't decide it. <laughs> so when, when I decided, Steve, I don't know. I was president of Farm Bureau for 14 years in New York State, and American Farm Bureau did 12 years. Because of that, I was had multiple opportunities to interact with other organizations and other agricultural entities. And so it was probably normal transition of when I was available. They'd ask me out committees and so forth of non-Farm non Bureau entities. But when I was done being president of the Farm Bureau, immediately it happened that the Federal Land Bank was in financial difficulties in 12 regions of federal land banks. Three of the federal land banks in the Midwest agricultural land banks were in bankruptcy because of the Depression. Congress decided that, or were deciding publicly, that land banks weren't going bankrupt, had to kick in money to save the ones who were. That meant that Springfield, which was a Northeast land bank with their reserves, for loans to farmers, had to turn over half of their reserves to the Midwest farmers. The president of the Springfield Bank called me on the phone and says, Dick, we need some help, and we need it right away quick. We need somebody who knows Washington and legislation and so forth to save the bank. So I went to work for them, a consultant, 
drove to Springfield Monday morning and came home on Thursdays. One of their legislative that was a full-time employee of Springfield Bank, and I would go to Washington on Tuesday and lobby for saving the bank. And we weren't the only ones, but we got other states involved too, and, and finally decided that these banks were independent, and the money that was reserves in them was the farmers in their, their regions. And if the decision of the board directors in another place went bankrupt, that was their responsibility, not ours. And we won. So that's how I got involved in that. And when I got done with that, key bank in Albany, he called me on the phone and says, Dick, we've just bought a lot of banks on the West Coast and a lot of agriculture in the West, in the banks we bought. We have nobody on our staff knows anything about it, so he hired me. That lasted a year, but it was a very interesting. I visited all the banks in Oregon and Washington, Idaho, Arizona, and I was all ready to go to Alaska because they had bank in Alaska. But governor appointed me commissioner. President of Key Bank says, he's just getting back at me. He says, because I hired his financial agent to, that Governor Cuomo had for, Key Bank hired him for their financial business. So that was my experience in banking. Dave Call, I've got a beautiful letter from Dave Call on my retirement. He and I have been good friends for years. I remember Dave spoke at my retirement farm bureau. They had a banquet for me. And he says, Dick didn't go to Cornell, but he went. He probably attended more meetings at Cornell than many of the students. <laughs> so, well, that is something to be proud of. I mean, you made the best with, with your circumstances. So you became commissioner. And, you know, looking back at that, that time period and some of the changes that were happening in New York agriculture and some of the work that you were, were doing with the city and down in New York City, what are, what are some of your, your memories there? And, and what are you most proud of, of of your work as commissioner? I tried to broaden the thing to, to include everybody. For example, maybe the second year as commissioner, Maggie, my secretary, come in and says, we've got a letter here from a woman in Harlem that is complaining about the quality of the grocery stores are terrible. Rats and mice and all kinds of things. She's contacted the commissioner several times and nothing ever happens. So I got in touch with a guy in charge of grocery store inspections, food inspections. I asked him what, about, what he knew about it. Oh, he says, they're always complaining. He says, we have a problem with inspectors. We've got 150 inspectors in New York City alone. And he says, what happens is grocery store manager pays them off to, to pass them. And if they don't, then they complain, send a letter to the mayor or somebody that they're being picked on and so forth. Politically, they get away with it. So I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to have a meeting. You get in charge of the inspector who was in charge of Harlem inspection, store inspection. And I had the guy from the, the Albany office and the assistant commissioner and I, I think there were six or seven of us, got in touch with this lady and we went down and met with them. They were absolutely amazed at had the meeting. I had it in a church and we reviewed the whole thing and I told her what we were going to do. I told the guy then in charge of inspectors to rotate his inspectors the ones that were working in Harlem, moved them to Queens, bringing a, a, a whole different team of inspectors. And in 30 days, we're going to make a report back to the same meeting again. I'm telling you, it was a revolution in New York City. It suddenly, everything changed. It wasn't just in that, in Harlem, it affected the whole system. You couldn't believe how appreciative those people were. They invited me back to church me big Methodist, black Methodist church. They had three, four hundred people there. I was their angel. <laughs> they said for 20 years they'd been trying to get something done about the inspection. Nothing ever happened before. 
So that was one of the things I was proud of. You should be. Yeah. That that helps, you know, the individual New Yorker's life of having a good place to shop and right. access to oh, food. Oh, yeah. But it was just, you know, that was easy to easy to evolve into the what it was. Inspectors were politically appointed. Probably weren't paid a big salary. They go into management of a store and say, you got 10 violations. The guy says, how about $1,000? Very hard to control. Mm -hmm. The same people. When they got moved around, <laughs> they suddenly woke up. You also played a major role in the New York City watershed plan. Well, yeah. Which uh, was huge. That That was. The reservoirs and the source of water is the Catskill Mountains for New York City. And it is an excellent water supply. And for, I don't know when it started, but for 100 years probably, they never needed any purification program, any plan for the, for the treatment of the water supply. It was good. But politics said they, it couldn't be that good. A major city didn't have a water purification program. They had to spend nine or $10 million to build a plant to have all the water go through the plant. And so it was up for discussion in New York City as well as the state legislature. And in the process, they were going to put in residence any farm that drained into the water system had a river or brook or stream or anything in the farm, they would have closed 150 farms in the Catskills who couldn't comply. The Farm Bureau and those in the kit down the Catskills got in touch with me. Commissioner said what the proposals they'd got, Dutchess County, Columbia County, and three or four more counties, Delaware County. I arranged a meeting as commissioner with the water commissioner in New York City said, we're interested in solving the problem. We want to keep the water pure. You don't want to send $9 million to build a plant. All the rest of probably double that. Let's, let's find out what the problem is and see if we take care of it at its source. Get Cornell involved farm by farm. And if the farm needs to build a retaining wall or whatever they need to limit the possibility of, of pollution, you, your $9 million of go towards that instead of building a plant. We had meetings and series of meetings in the Catskills, down Coble Skills, got involved. Finally, they came up with a plan to, to examine every farm. Cornell Extension did it and say whether they had a problem, whether they were polluting the stream or whether they weren't. I think out of the hundred and some farms only found one or two that were potential problems and they were corrected. New York City paid for it. They didn't have to build a plant. Ended up saving farmers in New York City both money. It was such a good program that Mr. from New York City invited the water commissioner and myself to Washington, D.C. to expose the whole plant to Congress that they could use in other cities, which they did. That was that was a major, a major victory. I thought, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I think it really goes to show what can happen when you sit down and work together. Yep. And in in all of your years in leadership roles, you know, what is your best leadership advice, or what is something that you found valuable that helps to accomplish things large and small? Communication with people. You know, most of the major problems started out as little problems that could have been solved before they grew. I'll tell you another one. And it's because you've developed a lot of contacts over a period of time that are, are useful. I've got a vegetable grower in Erie County who raises carnations and a lot of other things and ships a lot of shipment to California. He had two and a half million plants, I forget what variety they were that he had sold to, as a supplier to California. And suddenly the inspector, New York State inspector, said that he had a call from California and wanted to make sure that these things were 
pass inspection for a fruit fly, which they didn't. It hadn't been sprayed for fruit fly goods. Why? We don't have the fruit fly. California has the fruit fly. New York State never had a fruit fly, but they wouldn't let him ship his, his produce. And he called me on the phone because he's a Farm Bureau member. He knew me. So I called the Commissioner of Agriculture in California, who happened to be on the executive committee with me. In an hour, we solved the problem. He got a notification he could ship his products. It's the, it's the ability to accumulate over a period of time with contacts that fit almost any problem that comes up if you know the right people that are involved in it. And that wasn't necessarily me. It just happened that I knew the people. People cause the problems and people solve, can solve the problem. But if you don't do it, it just gets worse. It's a very important lesson to talk things through and deal with it when they're small. Yep. Small problems are solvable, big ones are difficult. Looking back at your career, is, is there one thing you're most proud of or anything that just truly stands out that, you know, a hundred years, that you lived a lot of life yep. and, and, and anything that just stands out in those hundred years? Well, one of the things that because of the nature of what I was doing, I never had to leave the farm. I farmed for 50 years. Because I was depending on help that was not always reliable, it was a problem. I loved farming. It was a base that made me knowledgeable of other people's problems that were in the same business. Definitely helped my decision making because a farmer in Erie County or Allegheny County had a problem. I knew what it was and understood it. They never had a commissioner that did. Most of the commissioners were non-farm background, and it, I, I think they're fortunate right now, Dick Balls is in agriculture, and he was on the board of directors of the Farm Bureau, and, and he, he, he understands farming. But before that, they had college professors and political judge from Allegheny County, and they not only didn't understand it, but they, because they didn't understand it, they avoided it. They just didn't, wouldn't act up because they didn't know what to do. So I, I think most proud of that through my whole career, I, I still lived on the farm and, and it had that base that substituted for lack of college education. <laughs> well, what I love about your farm though is the farm is still telling its story. You have an amazing museum. You have the history of not just your farm, but New York agriculture right here on site. And you got the folder, have you? I do. Oh, you did. There's 12 museums now. There's only seven, and that was printed. Right, those museums are maybe kind of an accident. Back in the 70s, my father and three other retired farmers decided that the machinery and the tools they used in, in the horse age were just disappearing, rotten down in the woods and so forth. Next generations would never know what we did. So they started the museum at the county fairgrounds and they're collecting equipment. And out of that, I says, hey, I had I'd added a couple of more farms. I decided I threw away a lot of the stuff, but I kept a lot of it. I began organizing it and using my buildings. And it just grew. People would come visit and say, but I've got something you ought to have in your museum. <laughs> so it's, it's really enjoyed it. And it's preserving history. I've had two open houses the last two years. They had over 250 people each time. And I probably had a thousand or more sign the book down here. And it's free, so that helps. <laughs> Well, it's important, you know, for people to understand yep. farming and New York agriculture, and because it's a it's an important story to share. It's interesting, you know, the people that come, been here, that they have relatives or friends visiting them, and they'll bring them, say, "Hey, we got something to show you," and they'll call up and say, "I got a family from Florida. They'd like to go through your museum." So it's been, uh, I've enjoyed it. Why is it important to share that story of, of the New York farmer and New York agriculture? 
Why is that important to you? Well, because increasingly we're a non-farm nation. Because of technology, the people that are actually in agriculture have been cut in half in the last 20 years, 30 years. Of all minority groups involved in government, we're the smallest. Agriculture as a group, votes don't matter. So obviously, politically, in the halls of state governments and, and federal government, the knowledge of, of agriculture, its benefits to society and its needs are ignored. So you have to write, bypass government in a lot of ways to educate public. And everything you can do to involve them with the farms in their communities has, right on the other side of that woodlot, I've got a house I sold six acres of land and the guy built a house back in the 50s, 60s, a doctor. It's been sold several times since. People that own it now are from Long Island, never without a farm till they moved up here. They came to the museum twice, and they brought other people to it after. They said, you know, I learned more in that museum about agriculture than I ever, ever even read about. Can we bring more people to it? So forth. It's a method of communication, that's all. Well, it's an important one to share. Well, I, I, we'll kind of wrap things up, but at the end of your book, you have a list of the things that you would like to experience again. Looking back, you have a lot to choose from over 100 years, but what is one thing that you would really like to experience again? Well, I really enjoyed uh, agriculture on the farm. And one of the things I would love to drive a team of horses and plow a field, which is obviously isn't going to happen as an for long time, but there's something about you are really close to nature. It bothers me a lot to hear all the environmentalists talking about preserving nature and so on and so forth. They, they have no idea what has happened in, in 100 years. Far, good farmers, and they're the only ones that are left, if they weren't good farmers, they wouldn't be there, are really very conscious of preserving nature, preserving land, preserving right here in Washington County. There's twice as much trees. Mechanization and, and scientific development has been able to produce crops on half of the acres, produce just as much crops as, as they did in the horse age. And a lot of that land has gone back into trees. There's twice as many woodlots and forests in Washington County there was 100 years ago when all these health farms were being used. Now they're all grown up to trees. Agriculture's got a tremendous record of preserving and saving nature. And it bothers me that they're getting blamed for things. It just, it just aren't true. Mm -hmm. But Commodore, methane gas, I can envision any day. I, I think these big dairy farms are vulnerable because they're going to pass rules that they have no control over. I don't know what the answer's going to be. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's labor law right now. Farming doesn't work on a time clock. You got halfway through a job and your 40 hours are up. What do you do? I don't know how they're going to solve it. It's, they're vulnerable. Hopefully by keep talking to the right people like you did all those years. Hopefully that's, that's the, the only answer. Yeah, the Farm Bureau has got to use their contacts. And it... I, one of the great things that happened at the time, and I'm not saying it could be repeated, but these kitchen conferences that suddenly discovered that they, on various subjects that were not agriculture, 
education, highways, environmental problems. They started meeting locally with the people. It's an educational process that they didn't realize what they were doing that really paid off. Dick, this has been a pleasure talking to you and hearing your stories and learning about the history. And thank you for all those years of service and all the, the help that you've provided over the years. I enjoyed it. I really, I've enjoyed people and I've enjoyed, we got 250 cards, people I hadn't heard of, heard of for years, remember me. And as I told Dodie, because of my age, a whole generation is dead that I didn't hear from. What impressed me was how many young people I heard from. Gary Swan came up from Gettysburg. Mm. Dave Salmons had come up from Washington. Mm. Have people from Western New York. Their, their fathers and mothers knew me. <laughs> That's, that was exciting. That's a testament to you. It was, and I appreciate it very much. <laughs> Remember that annual meeting when I got the award from the American Farm Bureau? I remember when I when they got it, I responded by saying, Farm Bureau gave agriculture a platform to participate in democracy. That's the main point. Mm -hmm. It's a platform that they can use and it's underused, but it's there, it's a structure in, in democracy. It's a beautiful way of looking at it. I never quite thought of it in that perspective before, but you're absolutely right. It's their avenue to being a part of it. Being a part of democracy, as well as a community of farmers looking to make a difference. These things remain the foundation of Farm Bureau, much like they did 100 years ago. Thanks so much, Dick, for sharing your stories and your wisdom. You're still making a difference. That's it for this extended edition of News Bites. Next time, we're going to take a look at what farm families need to think about when it comes to transitioning to the next generation. Until then, thanks to Seth Moser-Katz for editing this podcast, and thanks to our farmers for all that they do. 